everybody. Welcome to Terror Talk. It's with Shannon and Kathy. Today is 2222. Wow. Two's my favorite number. <laughs> well, today is your day then. Groundhog Day as well. So, yeah. Big day. Wednesday, 2222. 2222. Crazy, right? I think that's kind of cool. Remember that old sitcom, 227? Yes. I have no memory of what it's even about, but I do remember that there was a sitcom. With Jack Hay. Oh, yeah. Sandra. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. now I remember. Okay. 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 I oh. found something. This is really cool. Nice. I think they're doing it virtual this year, just to be safe. Mm. But it is called Endless Night Anti-Valentine's Vampire Ball. <laughs> okay. At the, Well, Globe Theater Los Angeles is where it takes place, but it's hard to tell right now. It does say that it will take place um virtually mm-hmm. this year uh you can find it on eventbrite so endless night hosts sold out vampire costume themed events in berlin paris new york barcelona tampa las vegas austria amsterdam and the main event over halloween weekend in new orleans mm-hmm. at the house of blues nice the dress code is victorian edwardian latex ancient cultures <laughs> a medieval pagan this is really flipping cool. I bet you anything. And so there's like a bottle menu. So when it's in when it's in person, mm-hmm. you're attending like a vampire ball. That's, <laughs> that's anti-Valentine's, awesome. which I think is awesome because so many of us are like, oh, Valentine's, whatever. Yeah, right. You can go on to app.discotech.me <laughs> and look this up. But it's called the Endless Night Anti-Valentine's Vampire Ball 2022 with the Globe Theater LA. Nice. Yeah. That looks really like a fun. lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Because we're doing a little true crime today, I wanted to bring you this article on decider.com, which is about the 10, what they feel were the 10 best true crime documentaries of 2021. Okay. And I'd like to start by saying their number 10 option is Operation Varsity Blues, the college admission scandal, oh, wow. which is one of the ones we're going to be explicating yeah. next week, ladies we and gentlemen. So uh, we're going to talk about the college admission scandal in general, but by way of that documentary. It's not exactly, I don't know. They listed it as a documentary. I haven't watched it yet. I have. But it has re- a lot of reenactment. They do reenactments and then they also show real stuff. So it, it's like yep. a, a combination. It's a blend, mm-hmm. so to speak. So we'll be doing that next week on the show. Number nine for them is a documentary called Bad Sport. And it's on Netflix. Each episode of the six-part series tells a different criminal saga in the world of professional sports. So I think... To me, that's always interesting because mm-hmm. there's lots of lots of criminal sports behavior and in, in professional sports and college level sports. In oh, fact, my God. and each one is wilder than the last, it says. So my so school it, has controversy in all that varsity blues, <laughs> sports and crime. So both of these are. Yeah. So USC knows all about it. Who doesn't want to watch a documentary about a major weed dealer who became a race car driver on the side or a blatant cheating scandal during the Olympics level figure skating? Who doesn't want that? I mean, yeah. So number eight is Murder Among the Mormons. Directors Jared Hess and Tyler Misam's docu-series may have a compelling title, but the crime at its center isn't exactly one of murder. Instead, it's one of forgery and the mass exploitation of an entire religion. The series follows Mark Hoffman, a Mormon who claimed that he found several sacred texts connected to the Church of the Latter-day Saint. His path of scams led to him detonating multiple bombs and murdering two people. It's a stranger than fiction story that questions its central figure's lack of empathy. There's a review here. Yeah. Gave it five stars. Yeah. And she says, for a story about a bunch of old white Mormon guys in Salt Lake City, Utah, this was very interesting. Yeah, it sounds like it goes a lot of different directions. <laughs> she said that the uh, the forensics team and all the, like, the stuff, she says, according to this review, obviously it's one person, mm-hmm. said it was very good. Well, and this is on a top 10 list. Yeah. So... Number seven is Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer, which we have watched about Richard Ramirez. When we did our Richard Ramirez series, we Mm -hmm. had watched that, or at least I had. Uh, Number six is The Way Down, 
Marina Zinovich expose on Gwen Shamblin Lara and her diet program, Way Down Workshop, isn't fun. There are no zany founders or delightfully wild stories to lift the mood. (laughs) There's only a woman who ruthlessly exploited two of her victims' biggest insecurities, their weight and their religious devotion. Mm -hmm. Shamblin Lara died earlier this year, meaning that one of her most prevalent legacies is one of mass pain. It's probably why they got to do it's on HBO Max. I'm really digging the HBO Max docs oh, lately. Yeah. Like the Brittany Murphy one was great too. I've watched a few of them now and I'm really digging them. I will say though, sorry to cut you off. The Night Stalker should not be on that list. I, I don't think it was in the top ten of the year. Well, there you go. We'll find out. I mean I'm watching these others. I mean, do you think that the one we're doing next week is on, should be on a top 10 list? I liked the one. Okay, great. And, and that's why I was looking up the Mormon one, because you never know. Just because it's on a list doesn't mean anything. I mean, no. you know. And you have to like the content or yeah. be interested in it. Well, I the- mean, I love the content of the Night Stalker. I just, I, I thought it was okay, but I thought it was. Well, it's rough with the oldies because yeah. there's not nothing new and you really want to be learning new stories. Yeah. Number five is John Wayne Gacy, Devil in Disguise. Ooh, that's one we should watch. Most true crime fans know the story of John Wayne Gacy, but rarely has this terrifying saga been told as thoroughly as director Rod Blackhurst handles it. Under his direction, the estimated 33 murders that Gacy committed weren't merely the work of a single unhinged man. They happened because of this man and the countless systems of power that turned a blind eye to his wrongdoings. Well, that we hear a lot about. Like, they caught him and let him go. And then they kind of, you know, we do a lot of that in our Mm -hmm. true crime stuff. Devil in Disguise extends the blame for this legendary crime spree to include Chicago itself. It's difficult to think of Gacy case the same way ever again. Okay. Number four, I've been seeing a lot of ads for this one. Lulu, Lula Rich about Lula Rowe. Jenner First and Julia Willoughby Nason's docuseries is a bit of an odd addition to this list because the company at its center, Lula Rowe, settled out of court. But Lula Rich makes a strong case that if the actions this company took weren't illegal, they were at least morally wrong. What started as a great way for people to make extra money selling leggings quickly devolves into a horror story plagued by tales of debts, obscene worker deadlines, upset customers, and garages piled high with unsold merchandise. It's an economic thriller that shows just how addicting yet toxic multi-level marketing companies can be. When I used to resell clothing on the side for fun, there was a period of time in that where LuLaRoe, like if you found stuff like that in the thrift and resold it, you could make a lot of money because everybody was looking for LuLaRoe row and not be and not able to find it and then the bottom dropped out of the company the value tanked and then everybody was left because it was kind of like avon where you bought and then sold to your friends okay and the bottom dropped out of the company and then all of these sellers were like left with all this merchandise that they couldn't move mm. <clears throat> number three but i'm sure there's more to it than that so i'd actually be interested yeah, I'm kind of, in watching I'm looking that. at the uh description of the whole thing right now number three so top three, the lady and the Dale. There's nothing quite like a good scammer. And that's exactly who Elizabeth Carmichael was. In the 1970s, she founded the 20th Century Motor Car Corporation and created a car known as the Dale, a three-wheeled <laughs> fuel-efficient car. But as the Dale became more popular, Carmichael became more suspicious. No matter what direction you think this true crime saga will go, prepare for it to veer off course. This is one wild ride. That's an HBO Max one, too. Cool. Yeah, they do have some good ones. Yeah, they really do. I've, I I went in and kind of looked around, and there was a lot of them in there. And I was like, okay, I got to get on this at some point. And maybe this spring, you know, we'll be more, doing more of these docs and, and knock some out. Because some of these topics are really interesting. So top two. Number two, The Phantom. Director Patrick Forbes' Tribeca film isn't so much a true crime story as it is an examination into a possible mass failure of justice. In February of 1983... Wanda Lopez, a gas station attendant, was murdered. It was a crime that Carlos Leluna was charged for and that eventually led to his execution by lethal injection six years later. That's really fast. The really Phantom, fast. Yeah. The Phantom seriously considers whether Deluna's claims about his own innocence were true. 
It's a captivating film that dives into one of our collective fears. What if you were charged for a crime you never committed? That one's on Netflix. And number one, which is one I definitely have been wanting to watch, it's also on HBO Max. It's Alan versus Pharaoh. Oh, yeah, this is supposed to be the best documentary of the year, and I've heard a lot of really amazing things about it. Kirby Dick and Amy Zuring's four-part docu-series is about all is about above all else heartbreaking. In 1992, director and Hollywood darling Woody Allen was accused of sexually assaulting his adopted daughter, Dylan Farrow. Thus launched one of the most contentious and brutal celebrity crime stories in modern history. Allen versus Farrow assumes audiences already know Allen's side. Instead, it's far more interested in extending Dylan Farrow the same platform Allen has received through years of meticulous interviews placed in top publications. Ultimately, the allegations against Allen were rejected by a judge. But this series makes this already murky case feel all the muddier. So this one is trending. You know, I work in the family court system. This one's trending quite a bit through the family court system. Again, trying to show that judges don't... (laughs) It's a very patriarchal system. They don't listen. Um, this one's made a lot of headway. I bet. Yeah. I bet. Looking forward to it. So that's the top 10, according to Decider. Sounds like there's a lot of good offerings in there, whether or not you agree with a couple of those. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever. Everybody's going to have their own top 10, just like movie lists or anything else. But I just wanted to throw some of those out there. Because yeah, I know great. you and I are getting back into true crime docs and mm-hmm. more true crime content because we're just we took a moment (laughs) and we Mm -hmm. didn't do as much as we used to but now we're we're going in again it's kind of it's i'm feeling a little bit more enlivened because i've been seeing all these good documentaries so yeah that's awesome thank you for that. that so the next thing we really need to do is there's this little segment that we like to call she's super excited about it you're welcome number one How long did Lon Chaney Jr. sit to get his makeup done for the Wolfman? I I can't wait to find out. Number two, (laughs) smartass. Hey, your song was a little lackluster. You want me to sing number two? (laughs) When major attraction at Universal Studios, Hollywood abruptly shut down after the 2008 fire. Now you know the caveat. I know. All right, what she major- sings things all the time. <laughs> I, I am. I'm like Lynn from Bob's Burgers. <laughs> Number two. Okay, let me. Read I don't this even again. know what that was. <laughs> what major attraction at Universal Studios Hollywood abruptly shut down after the 2008 fire? The ride went up on June 14th, 1986. It was one of my favorites. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Number three. This scream queen is Jake Gyllenhaal's godmother. Got it. Number four. Joseph Grimaldi Mm -hmm. was the first person to gain professional recognition dressed as this character often used in horror films. Got it. Confidence over there. (laughs) I'm trying. Number five. What do you call a person... Who loves horror movies? <laughs> we call him over for dinner. No. Okay. Thank you very much. We will look forward to the answers at the end of the show. That's how we do it around here. But first, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with our part four, actually, of our Ted Bundy re lesson. So, what we've done. For those of you who are just joining in, this is the fourth part of it, is we've gone back to our original Ted Bundy's breakdown. Kathy did a breakdown of Ted Bundy's personality, his crimes, the way he was convicted and caught, etc. The whole story. And we did that in our first season with very poor sound. And also, we were just beginning on our journey as podcasters. And so we felt like it was good content, but we wanted to go back in. I wanted to edit stuff. <laughs> I wanted to edit it so we could hear it and we could take out all the ums and ahs and all the background noise and everything. Edit it up and then revisit it and talk a little bit more about maybe what we've learned since then, et cetera. We just thought it was good and we wanted you to hear it, but we didn't want to keep the old one up on the channel. So True story. that's what we're doing. Number four up next. 
everyone. We are back. We are. <laughs> We're going to do the Ted Bundy part four. And this ends up actually, Kathy, being his college stuff, college years, a couple of the first women that he was involved with. Okay. So what's going to happen now is you're going to hear us talking in the original series. Again, I have I have corrected it as much as possible, everyone. And we've done a few of these and it sounds pretty good when you listen back. So it's all good. And then we stop every now and then and make kind of like updated comments about what we think, either about ourselves and how lame we sound or <laughs> how fabulous we are. No, about uh, anything we might feel differently about. Because I mean, it was four years ago. Yeah. And we've oh done this God. a lot. I can't believe it's been four years. Yeah, we've done this a lot. And so we present things in a slightly different way. So here we go. Let's get started, shall we? We shall. Okay. All right. So moving on to his college life. So now we're looking at maybe 19, 20, 21, um, 1967. So that would have made him 21. He okay. enters into an Asian studies program at the University of Washington. Interesting. I don't know why. Well, and it's also interesting that he's 21 when he goes yeah, to college. Yeah. I mean, right? I don't know if he did anything before that. It it's just i know this is when i believe this is when he seriously started yeah it's just interesting right because most of us if we go right from high school to college yeah. we go at eight so especially at that time there was okay. there you know there weren't all these yeah things that people do now before they go so he because he wouldn't have gone to the military right, or didn't. anything so. so so again the personality piece it was at this time he started another personality um which he actually started becoming more confident <laughs> not just in class which we knew he was doing that in high school but also witty and secure with women so he tried on this new mask hmm. and he met a woman by the name of diane edwards if you look up diane edwards she also went by the pseudonym stephanie brooks i don't know why i don't think that's really that relevant but stephanie brooks okay. is going to be one of the most important factors of the rest of his killing spree because she is the woman who breaks his heart and every victim looks just like her. Okay. He meets this woman. This would be the woman who would literally paint the profile. Okay. So long brown hair parted in the middle. Um, she was very beautiful. She was very wealthy. I think that he felt, and I think it was the first time, one, it was the first time he was in an intimate relationship that he felt inadequate and insecure with someone the entire time, because mm -hmm. as much as, and like we know about narcissism is what they fall in love with you, quote unquote, in love with you for is what they end up sort of hating you for at the same time. They want that from mm -hmm. you, but they also don't want you to be better than them. And so I think that he really struggled with how he felt in that relationship, but he was obsessed with her. Um, so to whatever capacity he was capable of falling in love, he did fall in love with Stephanie. Um, it was his first intimate sexual relationship with a woman. It lasted a year until Stephanie broke it off. She was like, Bundy was not mature enough. She didn't feel he was going anywhere in his life. Well, Very depending true. on what you see as success, he did go somewhere in his life, but yes, not correct. Yeah. She was basically like, you know, this is really just a, a college sweetheart kind of thing. And this talk about an yeah. injury, right? I mean, he did not Boy, accept yeah. this and he was devastated and he was obsessed with her to the point where he actually dropped out of school and he moved back home. Yeah. I mean, I, I hear the shame mm -hmm. in that, right. That he, she shamed him. You know, she, he probably put her on a pedestal as, you know, the perfect woman. And also as a narcissist by this point, mm -hmm. I think we're saying, you know, falling in love with your, yourself, your projected self and falling in love with the mirror, like what you, what you want to be. And then, and being obsessed with that, of course, not, not that that other person, not that she was an actual human being with thoughts and feelings and her own life, but that she was an extension right. of himself. And then when, in essence, being rejected by, rejected inside, you know, the shame inside would mirror totally his whole life, his, you know, including his, the That's way he right. was born, you know, That's in right. shame. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. So, I mean, she really just exposed all the right. weakness, all the everything that he seemed to see as inadequate. She 
she really unmasked him there, I think, and it really, really did it. It did an injury, totally stripped him because he was relying on her, as you said, to, you know, make him feel amazing. And she was just she was a part of that. When she said, "No, I'm not," Mm -hmm. he uh, grumbled, (laughs) so he drops out of school. It he goes home. Hey, (laughs) so. I, th- I think what comes up for me when I listen to this, and I don't know if I highlight it later, is how much the humiliation piece, I think, is what we're talking about here, is he was essentially humiliated by her. And how humiliation is one of the biggest risk factors for narcissists and sociopaths and offenders. You know, when we humiliate them, when we expose that weakness, like I was saying, this is where he became incredibly dangerous was through that humiliation. And we have to remember that this is also following or around the same time that he finds out his sister is his mother. So he's now been duped twice. He's angry because he's been humiliated Mm -hmm. more so than just the anger of finding that out. It's I'm not supposed to be tricked. I'm not supposed to be duped. She wasn't supposed to be smarter than me, even though she appeared that way. And I wanted to use all of her goodness as an extension of me and brag about her. She duped me. My own mother duped me. This was the perfect storm. It's like, even though I know that she's smarter than me, I don't want to, I don't, I can't acknowledge that. That's too. Or that she would be, smart enough to leave. Yeah, I'm really struck by the layers. Okay, there's an organic brain chemistry to being a psychopath. Then there's trauma that lights the fire. Then there's humiliation that flips that switch. Because like not everybody turns into a serial killer. They're pretty rare. Right. So there's all of these things that have to layer on top of layer. And then we're just talking about things that, that trip that switch that trigger all of that. And we've already talked about in the, the first three chunks that we've, you know, explicated about the original, our original series is we've talked all about his kind of his childhood trauma and then just how this is layering, but also adding traumas, not only igniting the triggers, but like adding trauma upon trauma, because every time that's lit, every time he's humiliated, that's another trauma to pile on. Yeah. We know that the less time between traumas, the lower someone's trauma resistance becomes over time. Then you couple that with a violent childhood with an abusive father he looked up to. Mm -hmm. So he identified with the abuser, not with the victim. No safe caregiver. No safe caregiver. No model for empathy. We know that empathy is learned. Poor attachment. Nobody to attach to. (laughs) And then an unstable sense of self and identity And then he gets to his adult relationships, relives that in its own way, and already history of deviance, already been exposed to sex and violence at that age where that can really do some real damage for the rest of your life. Yeah, this was a complete recipe for narcissistic sociopath disaster. I think that's why this case has been talked about so much over the years. Sometimes we get a little Bundy fatigue. Yeah, I mean, he's really not that interesting of a dude. He's a textbook. He's totally textbook, but his developmental stuff, to me, is way more interesting than his kills. I mean, that's why we originally wanted to do these kinds of series, is we wanted to get into the development of the serial killer. That's right. right. So so that's the most interesting part for us. And of course, in future episodes, you're going to hear the the recounting of his kills and, and all of that, because of course, that's just part of it, because... How he kills and when and who and all of that becomes part of the psychology for us. And we we don't talk about the kills just because we like to talk about kills like a lot of people do. Uh, But it's more that that feeds into the psychology. So I'm going to keep playing. Yeah. 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 Okay. So he at some point after he gets home, remember, I was saying back at the age of 10, he started questioning whether or not his identity was what it was. So he decides to go to City right. Hall at this time to look into his family. And he's, he had always suspected something. So while researching, he digs up the truth and he finds that his sister was his mother and he was an illegitimate child. He's been faced by betrayal by two women, with betrayal by two mm-hmm. women. It yeah. is believed that the betrayal and rejection was the ultimate trigger 
um, that his killings were actually revenge killings, that this is what really triggered mm -hmm. what, what we already know was that seed that had been planted early on in life as mental health professionals, we know that there's that someone can be predisposed to something, but unless the environment triggers it, it may never be triggered. And a lot of theorists mm -hmm. state that this was the ultimate trigger, like fuck this. Yeah. Like the, the one, two, two punch. punch. So his mother and the one woman he loved. So following these injuries, he goes back to the university mm -hmm. of Washington in 1971. So we're looking at what, four years later and he starts to study psychology and he actually received a degree in it. I think it's the only degree, the only thing he ever actually completed. He meets a new woman by the name of Elizabeth Kendall, who will become a witness at some point. She's a divorcee. She be, she, they're dating, I think, for a couple of years. He starts to work on a suicide crisis hotline. So this is where he meets Anne Rule, who I was talking about earlier, who would work the graveyard shift with him. So she never suspected anything. He was always just really kind of looked at her as a, as a mother figure or as an aunt. There was never a sexual thing. Mm. She was a bit older. Which well, is lucky, yeah. right? Because whoever he attaches a sexuality it's to dead. is sort of that's right. a and victim, so he, right? And yeah. she didn't resemble any of the victims anyway. But so, she, you know, she became a well-known right. writer, author, and she would become one of the most influential people in his life. Anne wouldn't suspect anything until years later when Ted started to sort of fit the profile for many of the murders across the country. So she was, she his, was friend his friend through this whole and thing. And even when he started to become a suspect, she would call him and say, you know, Ted, I'm worried about you. I'm really worried about you. Like, you're sort of matching this profile. And he's like, oh, Anne, it's not that. And I'm totally fine. And so she wrote a book years right. later called The Stranger Beside Me that talks about and literally geographically locates him and writes a lot of women write in and say, I was here at this time and I think I had a run in and she would be able to say that was likely him or that wasn't really good book. Yeah, really fascinating. Fascinating. I was going to say, so for people who are looking to research more and, and are interested in this, that would be it's a great book because she had, you know, book? she's not just writing on facts. She had personal experience and, and knew him all the way till the end and, and was actually there at his execution. So, you know, and she had a heart for him, but also, you know, started to feel very deceived and betrayed when she found out who he really was at the same time. So she tried to support him as much as she could, but you know, hello, he's a serial killer. So ability to choose friends. Absolutely. Basically. So, so in 1974, he then, after the gets the degree in psychology, this is where he enrolls in the university of Utah to study law. A lot of people believe this is sort of a ruse to make him look smart because we don't know if he ever really had an intention to finish. And he never did finish, but his law skills were the cause of his key grandiose decision to represent himself on trial for murder. Let go all of his, he's, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm the smartest person in the room. I've got this in that spring. So he lasted all of like seven months. He drops out of law school, becomes involved in active politics. Um, at this time, young women's begin to disappear across the Pacific Northwest. He becomes a rising Republican star. Seven women are now missing. And some of the theories behind this is he believed he was gathering information to outsmart the law. And he was really just a con artist. This is sort of yeah. where I'm going to leave it because after this, all of his killings um, start. So that's just where we stopped in one section and then there's a little bit more here. Okay. Uh, I didn't know if you had anything you wanted to, I, I wanted to mention that I obviously didn't edit out all the ums and ahs mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, but I bumped the audio and I clipped yeah, a bunch oh of stuff. Oh my God, it sounds so much better. And one of the things that you guys are going to, are hearing is us talking over each other a little bit and how it's not really working. And that's because we were remote and there was actually a little bit of a delay. So that's another kind of fucked up about the early days for us is that we weren't in the same room and there was always a delay and we didn't have the technology. And so sometimes we're talking over each other, but we really, I mean, you might hear us do that now, but it's usually out of passion. <laughs> yeah. And we just, yeah, we hadn't really worked out our, our and we couldn't see each other. We couldn't see, that's so there was one. no like nonverbal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah. We didn't even think about using zoom. It was like no, way we before. Didn't we yeah. didn't know any of that. It was before COVID. We didn't, before COVID. <laughs> we didn't, we weren't zoom aficionados. 
Yeah, I, I think in that clip, we're just further discussing the concept of the diathesis stress model, which you and I have highlighted, which is the formula for a serial killer was there, but the right environmental factors presented themselves in such a way that it was this perfect storm. And I think it also speaks to his level of, I don't know if Ted Bundy was really all that academic and smart. He was street smart. He was manipulative. He was charming. That's how he got to where he did. But, you know, he ended up representing himself in his trial and because of his narcissism blew his entire case and just really didn't see how he was getting in his own way. No, he never did. And mm-hmm. that that's another interesting development because, you know, when we were chatting before, it's like how the layers happen and how this psychopath is created. Well, it's also like how this very superficial but also it works in superficial relationships his defense of being charming or being able to talk to you and have you like him and appearing smart and all of this it was all on the surface so anybody getting to know him for more than 15 minutes or in a classroom it's why he like taps out of everything That's because right. he can't really hold it up but he did he did manage to develop this superficial way of passing cope you know mm-hmm. so to speak and that gets developed too and I think he, there, he was really good at doing all of these different things that made people want to go, oh, I want to be part of Ted's life and be part of this. And what is he doing? And, oh, he doesn't have time for me because he's got this going on. He's so important. Mm-hmm. He really wasn't doing any of those things. I no. mean, he sort of was on a superficial level. But like you said, it's what kept him from forging these really profound relationships with people. And and people were so fooled by it that they just believed he had so much going on that he didn't have time for them. It's a very successful way to do it. Yep. All those people that are too busy for you. Yeah, it's like <laughs> they're, the, that idea. They're all of, psychopaths. They're, no, I'm just kidding. They're super important. Like, yeah. I understand why they don't have time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, being busy as a cover. Yep. Yeah. All right, let's do this a little more of this. It's just so chilling because I, I just you just see the ramp up, right? You just see all of the, all of the signs that we know. You see the childhood where... Uh, the triad behavior, right? Mm. The animals and the different things that he did that that we know about psychopathic behavior. And then the teenage years um, and all of the acting out and the sort of trying on the different identities. And then the college years where he actually starts to come into that narcissism and starts to figure out who he is, who he wants to be, the identity he thinks he has. And I'm sure all along the way, he's having all kinds of Oh, violent, threatening impulses that he's not acting on would be a terrifying journey. Very terrifying, chaotic, you know, and and inside of him, you know, just chaos and uh, misunderstanding of the world and not being able to relate and trying to figure out how to attach and relate and figure out life. And he just wouldn't be able to do any of that. He wouldn't be capable of doing any of that. And then getting a degree in psychology, which, as we know, provides you with some cursory Mm -hmm. information. You know, a bachelor's in psychology is sort of like Mm -hmm. the beginning. It's, um, I don't know, for a personality like this, like more danger than it's worth to have like a little bit of information, but not a lot. That's right. And, you know, for people who who don't know this, there's a reason why psychopaths are never treated in therapy because they actually get worse and they learn and they pick up and they yeah, mimic and they use that information to manipulate. And, and that is what I believe he was doing is he was, he was gathering a lot of Absolutely. information through these early years. Yeah. In an effort. And I think, you know, in an effort to understand, like back to when he was three with the knives, you know, in an effort to understand humanity, which is not <laughs> something he gets, you know, like he doesn't, he doesn't get it. And he, and he wants to get it. He wants to figure it out. And so, okay, well, psychology, like I can figure out what make people tick. And then it also serves the fact that I can then manipulate oh, them. It's so bone chilling. And hurt them and sort of, yeah, it very much is. And the law school thing, like I can't even, I'm surprised he I lasted know. seven months because, because the amount of, you know, challenging behavior he would have come up across, you know, like he, they would have been challenging his thoughts and ideas and, arguing with him and 
and forcing him to defend himself. I mean, like that would never fly. With I'm almost wondering like though, if he saw some of these law professors almost like, um, I mean, not identically, but like, you know, with Simon, his grandfather, was there, you know, this admiration yeah. of maybe so. Yeah. yeah in maybe, the beginning for sure. And they probably betrayed him, right? Or at some point in class. And at some done. point he's not going to be able to yeah. hold it together anymore and hence the, the seven months but we know i know a lot of attorneys that have made it through law school is is narcissists and they've made it through and they know how to they know how to placate and they know how to feed someone's ego and they know how to use people if you think about it he knew he needed these people to get this information so even if that meant stuffing some right. shit down for a while he knew that you know they can they can get through this stuff if 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 they're going to gain something through it and I feel like he knew that he was going to gain something through it. So he was able to probably placate and charm the hell out of and use these professors for what he needed to at that time. You bet. I'm sure. So this is where we, we will conclude the first episode of this trilogy, so to speak. What can we expect next time? So the time, next Kathy? time we are actually going to go through the trajectory of his killings, at least the ones we know. And we're going to look at different patterns. We're going to look at profiles of some of the victims. We're just going to kind of look at his style as a murderer and what he would do and right. the things that would trigger him and the, the methods he used. And we're even going to talk about how he was arrested several times before he was even accused of some of the more like mass killings and how he was able to, quote unquote, get out of these situations. So further looking at his manipulation, his charm, how he was able to use that even to get out of some of the most notorious killings. Um, really interesting stuff. I don't know if anyone else could have pulled this off. Right. So the killing mm -hmm. years in essence. Yeah. yeah. There we go. That was the end of the first episode that we did. <laughs> wow. Not ever, but the first true crime episode that we did. Yeah. We had just, we had done a handful of horror episodes to sort of get our feet wet and certainly for me to learn the tech and figure out how I was going to get it up and have people listen to it and, and all of that. It was so, I don't know. It's yeah. nice. It's, I, I'm remembering, I'm like having a nostalgia moment as well Yeah. <laughs> about it. How does it feel listening to yourself back then? I don't really like to listen to myself much. Oh, so you're um, enjoying this quite a bit. I'm getting used to it as we <laughs> listen to it more. You know, mm -hmm. I think we've, I, I can only speak for myself. I've learned to just um, not have to rush everything. And yeah, I think you're a lot more thoughtful mm -hmm. now. You were nervous. We were both yeah. nervous. I mean, I think that's okay. We were, we yeah. were actually trying to do a good job and we mm -hmm. still very much try to do a good job. What I think is different now is that, I put a lot of effort into prepping for the episode mm -hmm. so that when I'm doing the episode, it, it flows better. Mm -hmm. It's more relaxed, et cetera. Then I sort of didn't know. Well, certainly on the Ted Bunny, because I, I was I was a listener. Mm -hmm. You know, I was I mean, I knew a lot more about the story, but a lot of people listening knew about know about Ted Bundy. So it's not like we didn't know the information and then trying to have something worthwhile to say about the psychology. You know, we were just doing it sort of new and. I mean, I felt I was like flailing a little bit more at that time where mm -hmm. I think it's become a little bit easier and just more organic. And I think that there's a flow and there's. I like the organization, though, that you were bringing like it was very organized. There was the way a timeline. Were, sure. There mm -hmm. was a timeline. It was organized. The way you were presenting it uh, was in smaller chunks. And I think that's a great way to go instead of like jumping all over the place. I like yeah. that linear thing. You're not trying to throw too many like random thoughts at people. You're kind of just going through it thoughtfully. I thought you did a really good job at that. Yeah. I, I don't think it was terrible. I just think we, we've learned a lot doing this now for four years and not having to throw so much into one episode and feeling like, you know, less is more sometimes and maybe even sitting on, one of those concepts and talking about one of those concepts for 20 minutes versus trying to f fit in 20 concepts. And yeah. And I mean, that's why a lot hour. of, absolutely. And I think that's why when I ended up doing Manson, which I think was next or was second, second one. or third, whatever, is that I did it in like five or six episodes. Cause I realized that we could actually just kind of like lean into stuff. We didn't have to do it fast. So now I know we do some of these, we do them in just like, one or two shows or what have you. Mm -hmm. But other things, I think, you know, you can kind of like we're doing this revisit. 
mm-hmm. over the course of maybe 10 episodes, just doing a chunk of it each time. Cause I think there's more to say. So yeah, that's for sure. Cool. I mean, and- we could have even gone into, if we really wanted to target the psychology is when we think about psychopathy, I mentioned it without saying it and it could have been an episode on its own. Just the way that psychopaths lack the mirror, the mirroring neurons in the brain. Right. Mm -hmm. And how so much of his behavior was because he lacked that capacity Mm -hmm. to really re and how much that speaks to so much of his behavior. So we easily could have made this true crime episode on Bundy three segments longer. Well, and Let's do this. The next time we do a chunk of this, let's do that. Let's have that conversation about mirroring because I can have it from the attachment perspective because when someone is born with that, it's not necessarily a recipe to being a serial killer because those attachment objects, that mirroring can be, can be muddled by good caregiving. And there's the, there's the, the nurture. Yeah. The nurture he never got. All these layers that we're talking about. The organic thing in his brain, right? The organic part that he's born with. The failure on the caretaking part. The failure repeatedly in the trauma and all the trauma he's exploded. Then the shaming. Then the this, then the this. Like all of that creates this. There were no protective factors. Yeah. Yeah. Portrait of a serial killer. Yep. Thank you so much for listening. We will take a wee break after this and come back with a few horror movies and horror horror reads. I don't think we have any more reads, do we? I have uh, not a horror read. I have a psych read. Okay, great. So we'll do a psych read. We can talk a little bit more about the book we're reading, a book club, and then we got some horror watches for you. So we will be right back. be like an electric you know mad metal guitarist when i hear that i want to get the air guitar going. i want to do the air guitar like you know when you're in eighth grade although i still do it air guitar you don't air guitar um come on now what do you do sing guitar. i do sing in the car I, you, I sing all the time i know i'm just saying do you sing to songs in the car like at the top of your lungs like you're a rock star yeah okay good i don't air guitar when i'm driving though i don't drive no? a tesla that drives itself that really doesn't i don't air guitar in the car either but i do but i do scream out loud and sing i do when i hear the mannequin uprising songs that they made for us i do drum a lot of the phil collins stuff <laughs> there you go that's what i'm talking about my best friend's exorcism. Oh, there you go. Uh, let's talk about this movie that we watched together. Shall we? Shall we? It's called The Wasteland 2021. We just watched it. I mean, I know it's 2022 already, but we, I'm just catching up on all my watches for 2021, actually. So what we do is we, in our membership, we vote on our Saturday movies right now. So everybody gets to put in some thought process around like, here's a couple movies I'd like to watch. And then I put up a poll and everybody votes and then two of the movies win. And so for this week, it was The Wasteland. One of the movies was. So Lucia and her son live isolated from society in a flat place. (laughs) That's for sure. Where there's practically no life. The small family unit formed by mother and son hardly ever receives visitors and their goal is to lead a quiet existence. At first they succeed, but the appearance of a mysterious, violent creature that starts stalking their small house will put the relationship that unites them to the test. That's the movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mixed feelings about it. Me too. Mixed feelings about it. I think there were re- some real strong elements. I thought the little boy did an amazing job. His but- performance was really great. I thought the mother's performance was really, she was a very unlikable character, but yeah. I thought she was so unlikable because the performance was so good. It's a psych a lot. I mean, there's a lot of psychology in this movie. I, I agree. Pepper was watching it with us last night and I was in the same frame of mind with her where we didn't really know how much this proverbial beast was metaphorical or or literal right which is the really the um protagonist of the film but so is the mother in a way too i would say absolutely Uh, the reason why i say the little boy is the protagonist is because it's his hero's journey sure sure yeah 
I'm sorry. I meant antagonist, not protagonist. Oh, my, oh, oh. my bad. My bad. Okay. But the, the, uh, <laughs> easy. <laughs> it was very atmospheric. It, so although it wasn't like lamb where there's no dialogue, there was a lot to feel mm-hmm. just by the way that it was set up. It was also very cold. Mm-hmm. It was very depressing. They made this movie during the pandemic, which makes sense because, there's really, I mean, it's, it's very isolated, you know, there's, there's only, it's really, it's really just, one set. <laughs> it's one set and it's really just the two of them and the bunnies yeah. through this movie. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, I mean, it's a lot of people will find this movie depressing. It is. Mm-hmm. It is depressing. I mean, the atmosphere is very stifling. So isolation mm-hmm. horror for sure. Yeah. It's very stifling. It's very bleak. The characters are mostly unlikable. In the mm-hmm. end, you like the boy and you realize it's his hero's journey, but you don't really know that. I felt like he was unlikable for a big good chunk of mm-hmm. it as well, mm-hmm. because there was this part of you that was like, don't do that. Do this. Come on. Let's go. You know, that kind of thing. I thought it was beautifully shot. I thought this the visuals were really beautiful. I think that uh, it, it's a t- it, it's timely in the sense that it is about isolation and what isolation can do to people over time. And that's why we don't really know, nor does it matter who the the villain is in this movie, because for all we know, it, it's something completely mentally constructed. But what happens between people and what happens to the psyche over time when we are separated from society yeah. and we are fed information without all of it, because, you know, mm-hmm. they they find out bits of this proverbial beast and sort of draw their own narrative, at least the mother does, around what it actually is or isn't. And I I don't know. I think it's a metaphor for a lot of things. Yeah. I think you can get to the end of this movie and you can have the discussion with the people that you've watched it with, whether or not it's real or not. Yeah. Because it could have been a complete fabrication of their psyches Uh being isolated and messed up and scared and, and all of this. But there is, as a horror movie does, does set up a mythology at the beginning that you can buy into as if it really happened. So there's a mythology of this creature. And if you see it, you're going to die and all of that. Like that's all set up in the beginning. But then as it progresses and becomes more and more psychological and she starts to have issues and the kid starts to have issues, you just sort of get in this confused state of like, I don't really know if it's real or not. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of cool. Yeah. My, my big criticism, well, I have a couple, but there's a trigger warning, I think for sure, if you've had punitive parents. So if you have punitive or verbally abusive parents, this is, there's a little bit of triggering going on in that because there is a bunch of that in mm-hmm. there. There's a little bit trigger, tr- a little bit of a trigger warning. I didn't think it was that bad around animal violence. Mm-hmm. And I realized that the creature was like a metaphor and you didn't know if it was real or not or whatever, but I always want substantial amount of creature. Yeah. And that creature, what we did see it of was it was, so cool. it was so cool, but it was like a minute. Yeah. Like it, total over the whole movie. I know. And and it was really, like you said, even if it was a, a figment of someone's I imagination, care. I wanted more of it too. I wanted more creature. This felt more like a drama. It did. Than a thriller or horror film. And... Yeah. But we see that sometimes in, I know. in dramas. Um, I mean, obviously there was a little bit of an edge. I understand why it fell in the horror genre me too but there's not that much horror no and i you know you gotta call it horror when there's a creature of any kind basically yeah you know because there is a creature and whether it's real or not is immaterial (laughs) there is a very cool creature but you just there just isn't enough so that was my that's my one problem and i will ding things like a whole star for that like it's not going to be a rewatch for me because of that i would rewatch it for that damn creature and of course if it wasn't so damn depressing yeah, it's the a heavy one. The depressing ones I don't really re- rewatch usually. Mm, so. Too much. Yeah. All right. What else did you watch? I'll talk about one that I watched over the last, over, it was actually, I watched this a w- little while back at the beginning, end of January, or beginning of January, excuse me. So it's a winter one. It's called Red Snow. It's new, 2021. I believe I saw it on uh, Prime. It's on Prime. You can get it on Showtime as well. So I had no idea that when I watched it, I thought it was going to be a serious movie, but it's actually a horror comedy, kind of. 
Struggling vampire romance novelist Olivia is spending her Christmas holidays alone at her deceased mother's cabin in Lake Tahoe. One night, an injured bat slams against her window. Olivia takes the wounded animal inside her garage to nurse it back to health. The next morning, Olivia is surprised to discover that the bat has transformed into a handsome vampire named Luke. Olivia stocks up on pig's blood from the local butcher to feed her new house guests, and soon the weakened vampire is up on his feet and talking. The unlikely companions get to know each other and start to form a tenuous friendship, but Olivia grows suspicious of Luke's intentions as his past begins to catch up with him. Had no idea it was a comedy. I didn't look that (laughs) far into it. I, I looked into the fact that this woman was housing a vampire in her garage and she was a writer and it was the middle of winter and I thought Uh that was cool. Uh Um, It had its moments, you know, it was kind of fun. It's worth a watch. He ends up, his banter with her is pretty fun. He, she's writing, she happens to be writing a novel or a book, excuse me, on vampires and he starts to criticize all these tropes that she's using. So they have, Uh there's a lot of fun dialogue there. Then just like with any vampire story, his tribe his coven, whatever you want to call them, show up to really prove to her that he's not this nice guy. Lots of blood, <laughs> lots of gore. It's fun in that way. If you like, like, you know, a lot of the blood and slashing and whatever, you know, I, I really wasn't looking for a comedy when I watched it. So I was a little disappointed by that, but it was okay. Yeah. I've seen that. Uh, I don't think I've ever talked about it on the show, mm-hmm. probably because I was kind of like meh about yeah, it. it. That's exactly how I felt. It had some moments. Yep. I can usually find moments in most things that I yeah. enjoy, but it wasn't one I I would say to go out and watch. God, and you know, when sure. you read when you read the description and you look at the poster for it and stuff, it looks like it could be so cool. Way good marketing for those movies. We need to hire one of those people for us because Seriously, they market things so well. They marketed <laughs> this like I, I even read it out loud to my brother. He says, "Oh, that sounds really good." Yes, and then I was that's like, "That's why I clicked on it." What? This really is, successful? Yeah, I know. Does she hate when they do that? They yeah. get us. But I also don't mind watching it. It's not that I mind watching. Te- it. it wasn't terrible. It just they marketed it to be much better than it actually was. <laughs> for real. So the other movie I wanted to mention is also bleak. Today is my bleak movie day. (laughs) But it's a 2021 movie, and I saw this at Sundance, and I often torture my friends by having them watch really bleak, dark, disturbing movies that, psychologically disturbing movies that I have seen at Sundance that have really good reviews and make really top 10 lists. One of them was Censor, which is one of Kathy's favorite movies. that's a good one. Uh, There was a movie Violation that I really loved that's very dark and disturbing that is on a lot of people's top kind of creativity ones. So this one is called Coming Home in the Dark, and it's 2021. The reviews, of course, were exceptional for this. It's a horror, but it's also a mystery thriller, 90 minutes long. It's very smart. It's very well acted. I think it's scary because I don't like revenge type stuff scares me. So a family's idyllic outing at an isolated coastline descends into terror when high school teacher Alan called Hoagie, his wife Jill and stepsons Micah and Jordan unexpectedly come across a pair of murderous drifters. Now, one of the murderous drifters is played by Daniel Gillies. He is so good in this. I know that name. Yeah. G-I-L-L-I-E-S. He plays Mandrake in this. Ooh, he's good. The enigmatic psychopath Mandrake and his hulking man-child accomplice Tubbs, who actually happens to be, this is shot, I believe it's shot in Australia, but Daniel is a indigenous, is Daniel is a Canadian and this Tubbs guy is absolutely an indigenous character. And they, oh boy, these two. So the psychopath and the accomplice, Tubbs, who thrust them into a nightmare road trip. At first, the family's terror seems to be born of a random encounter with two sociopaths. But as the night drags on, Hoagie and Jill realize that this nightmare was set in motion 20 years ago. So it's very brutal right out of the gate, not for the faint of heart, but also not gory. Okay. It's not gory, but... They're not shy about doing the things that actually real psychopaths would do. Got it. 
And then this guy's performance. I mean, all the all there is no weak link in this movie. Every performance is exceptional, and that's one of the things you do come to kind of look at in film festival. A lot of film festival wins are that the performances are really exceptional. It's brutal right out of the gate. The pace moves along. There's not a like a weak link in the acting. It moves. The plot moves, and it ends up being about more than you think it will be. Okay, I like that. And they nail the ending. Yeah, that's important. I, see, I like that versus last week when I was talking about Ringmaster or whatever, where it's like you're hoping they nail the ending and then the opposite happens. Although the ending was okay. It was just that like last part right before the ending, it totally turned it into this other movie. You, yeah. So when it does what you just said, yeah. then that's a nice little treat because, yeah, because you're not ex- expecting it. Yeah, I mean, this is dark. This is dark. Yeah. What is it called again? It's called Coming Home in the Dark. Okay. Well, there you go. It's literally dark. In the dark. Uh, and they're coming home in the dark. <laughs> yeah, so I would recommend it. It's, uh, yeah, it was a good one. So now yeah, we excellent. really need to know. Well, I, I'd like to talk oh, about have another thing. Quick. Oh, right, yeah, right. I, I just want to mention, this is actually not a horror thing. It's a psych thing. This is a really, I've read parts of this book before. But um, I'm going through and, and reading it a little bit more religiously this time. And, you know, I work with a lot of survivors of narcissistic abuse. This is probably one of the best books out there for people who come out of these relationships and go, what, what just happened to me? Um, and it's a book by Dana Morningstar called Out of the Fog. And it's been around for a long time. But I oftentimes have either people I'm consulting with or patients of mine will ask me, is there anything that I can read to give me more of a thorough understanding of what I went through and and also why the people around me may not understand what I'm going through? So if that is you or you are a clinician or you are a student and you, you start to become interested in this topic, this is a very, very good, informative, to-the-point book. Um, and what I like about this book is that it talks less about the narcissist, which is really irrelevant in healing. And it talks more about what happened to you and what starts to happen in the healing process. And so I'm just going to read two quick paragraphs of chapter one, just to give an introduction to the book. So if you're interested in this topic, if this sounds like you want to read more of this, this is what it is. So this is, what is the fog and how did I get there? The FOG is an acronym for Fear, Obligation, and Guilt, and was coined by Susan Ford and Donna Frazier in their book Emotional Blackmail to describe the emotions most commonly used by emotional manipulators to gain and keep control over others and over certain situations. When these emotions are being exploited, a fog of confusion sets in, and the person in the fog has a hard time sorting out what really is going on and who has the issue, and most importantly, what they need to do to get out and stay out of this fog. For many targets of emotional manipulators, the emotions of fear, obligation, and guilt are only part of the confusion. And emotional manipulators are only some of the people that the fog, that, that are fog-inducing. The fog can also come in the form of well-intended bad advice about commitment, family, and friendship from pretty much everyone. Friends, family, therapists, culture, religious leaders and texts and society as a whole. Really, really excellent book. And I've referred it to a lot of people who end up reading it and going, thank you. This is the best. This is, this is how I really was able to start healing. Yeah. It spoke right to them. Yep. And it does feel like a fog. It does. When you come out of it, but you don't know you're even in the fog. Don't even know you're in Until you come out of it, which is really disorienting. <laughs> So I understand. Thank you. That's a great recommendation. Yeah. And now to flip the tables on your... (laughs) We need answers, lady. I got answers. Well, you should have the answers. (laughs) I should, but I probably don't. How long did Lon Chaney sit for his makeup for the Wolfman? 25 hours. No, I'm just kidding. You can't do that and have a shoot day. Eight hours. Yes, right on the dot. (gasps) And then two hours for removal. Oh, God. So that was a 10-hour. Can you imagine you're tired and now it's getting two more hours to take it off? Yeah, the removal part, I don't like it. Number two, what major attraction at Universal Studios Hollywood abruptly shut down after the 2008 fire? The ride went up on June 14th, 1986. I don't know that one. King Kong. Oh, I, I'm not, I don't, I never yeah. went on that. Did you oh, go on it? Yes. Oh my gosh. Oh, uh, no. It was part of the backlot tour, which caught fire. Oh, yeah. that makes sense to me, actually. Mm-hmm. 
Never mind. I do remember that vaguely. The really big King Kong, and it was really hot inside, and there was already there was like fire in the ride, and it was yes, really cool. yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, and then there was a fire, and it burned down, and then that was over. Oh, yeah. I didn't remember that piece of piece of history. Thank you for that. How sad. I know. Uh, number three, this scream queen is Jake Gyllenhaal's godmother, Jamie Lee Curtis. You got it. Number four, Joseph Grimaldi was the first person to gain professional recognition dressed as this character, often used in horror films. I don't know. Clowns. Oh. He was known as the father of clowns. Oh, really? First appeared on stage in England during 1802. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing about clowns, too, is I think when you get scared of clowns or you watch movies with clowns, you feel the lineage. Yeah. Because they've been around forever. I want to say that Gr there's a Grimaldi school. Oh, I'm yeah. sure there is. Uh, and the last one, number five, what do you call a person who loves horror movies? Fabulous. Well, sure. <laughs> they are called phobophilic, oh. which is phobophilia is the love of fear. Okay. Grimaldi School of Clowning for Boys. <laughs> I just looked it, it up. It sounds funny, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. It sounds like a detention school. Yeah. Excellent. But, thank you so the much for that. The more you know. The more you know. The more... You know. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, next week on the show, we're going to go into that uh, college scandal, the college Oof. admissions scandal. So we're looking forward to that. And after that, it's a mystery. If you have ideas for the show, please do not hesitate to email us at terrortalkpodcast at gmail.com. Check out our website. Check out our Patreon. Come and join us. And we thank you so much for being you.